This is Aliens and Artists, part one of our conversation with Peter Robbins. I'm your host, Stuart Davis. Peter is an acclaimed researcher, author, and artist. He's also an experiencer. In their early teens, he and his sister Helen had a life-changing encounter with a craft and entities in broad daylight in the front yard of their home. This event radically altered the course of his life. It put his incredibly promising career as a fine artist into a state of suspension for half a century. This is the story of how his contact inspired the course of his life, but also derailed a career as a painter. Since coming to know his life story, I've thought of it as Artist Interrupted. My sister Helen and I, always very close as siblings and very close friends as adults. Helen passed in 2000, but she was also, as time passed, an artist, a performer, a singer-songwriter, a poet. She had a degree in English literature, was a graduate of the French Fashion Institute, a master seamstress, but at this point was a pretty quiet kid, fairly introverted. We were goofing around on the front lawn of our home on an late morning. And let me set the scene here because there was nobody there and there was nothing going on. There were no other kids playing on the street, no cars going by. It was a clear blue sky, not a cloud. And I don't remember what we were talking about or what we were doing, but just kind of goofing around. And I caught some movement out of my right peripheral vision and looked up and saw five silvery white disc-shaped objects coming in at a high rate of speed and in a very precise V, as in Victor, formation, and simply stop pretty much directly over the neighbor's house, the Parker's house across the street. And I have relived this three times in regressive hypnosis, so I'm speaking from recovered and confirmed memory in no uncertain terms. I either said, look, or Helen, and she looked up and saw them too, and there they were, just frozen in the sky as though it was a still photograph. They were, again, silvery white. They were not shiny, like stainless steel. They were more subdued in surface. They seemed to us both when we finally talked about this many years later, obviously metallic, more like a, a brushed aluminum. And we could both make out regular detailing around the edge of each. After the fact, the only thing we could compare it to was if you were looking at a commercial airplane that was flying by close enough to make out the regular detailing of the windows along the side of the aircraft. and my mind went into a spin. I experienced something that I had never experienced before, but that as a professional investigative writer and specializing in the subject of UFOs, having done quite a few hundred interviews, certainly over my life, that is just part of the profile. It's what happens to you when you look up and you see something that you are completely confronted by. I call it the checklist reaction, just because that's what makes sense to me. And it went like this. They're not planes. 
helicopters, blimps, dirigibles, kites, balloons, strange-shaped clouds, reflections from the ground, flotsam and jetsam. What are they? And I kind of knew what they were, and I didn't like it at all. As a child growing up in the 1960s, early, I was certainly familiar with flying saucers, but only in the context of the wonderfully bad B movies. But to the best of my knowledge, we human beings didn't have anything that flew that was round, or more accurately in this case, ovoid, like taking a dinner plate, holding it at arm's length, and tipping it slightly so you're looking at an oval. And my last grasp on holding on to, hopefully I could explain this to myself in conventional terms, was, and I used the phrase that I used, recorded, being a 14-year-old again in, in deep alpha state in hypnosis, maybe there's some kind of secret government test plane, some kind of secret government aircraft. But that didn't wash with me. And at that moment, I, my sister's reaction was very different, I learned years later, I experienced the most profound loneliness I'd ever felt. Part of it was, if I'm looking at what I think I'm looking at, then everything I thought I knew is now open to question. What I did intuit from the adult world was that this is not a serious subject, and people who take it seriously are made fun of. That ridicule factor, somehow I understood and appreciated. I'm 14 years old. I'm the shortest kid in my class as a rule. I am a nerd. I wear glasses. I'm not into sports. At 14, I was being run by my hormones. All I wanted was cooler clothes, better hair, to be a foot taller, and to have a girlfriend. I knew, in quotes, and I say this only half jokingly, that if I told any of my friends about this, sooner or later, a girl would find out. And if one girl found out, they would tell every other girl that I knew and didn't know. And soon every girl in the world would know that I was kind of crazy. And I was never going to have sex in my life. Again, I'm only partially joking. I was so upset about what I was feeling at a certain point. And this lasted forever in kid terms. Helen and I agreed it was certainly several minutes that we stood there looking at this without saying a word to each other. When I tell you what happened next, some of your listeners may think, mm, that doesn't wash with me. This is the most amazing thing this kid ever saw. And he's going to tell me he just runs away from it, goes in the other direction. Well, that's just exactly what happened. I was that anxious. I simply turned on my heels and headed for the front door. I was running into the house to tell our mom what we were seeing. And I was running diagonally across the lawn to where the lawn comes to the walkway from the front sidewalk right to our brown painted front door. And within two or three seconds, something happened that was so profound that I simply completely forgot about the most important thing in the world that was happening right there in front of my house, which was 
within a second, I felt as though I were running through molasses. Everything felt like it was in super slow motion. And I should say here, not only was there no fear or anxiety attached to this feeling, I was fascinated by it. I was entertained by it. I, I thought this was just the most interesting thing that ever happened to me. When you do the kind of work that I've done over my life, especially being so fortunate to work for many years for the pioneer researcher in this field, assisting him in hundreds of case investigations, you see this is simply part of a pattern, but it sounds so unreal, out of context. I was about to black out. Of course, I was going at normal speed, which was quite fast for me, but something had happened, and I felt that this was my reality. I was losing all motor functioning, and I was simply starting to fall, in my mind, in slow motion. And my last three thoughts before everything went black, I'd never passed out in my life, and a momentary flash of blue was first how beautiful my mother's hydrangea bushes looked. She had them along the front of the house, and she was a great gardener, and they were particular pale blue. My second thought was, hmm, I'm coming in toward the walkway, and in the scoring in the sidewalk, that after time of expansion contraction, cracks develop, and ants build their little civilizations in anthills right in those little places. I thought, oh, look, there's the ants and all of them working away and nice anthill and all that. And my last thought, again, before I passed out, was what a beautiful day this is. <laughs> and bang, I'm out of it. A period of time passes. Again, it's important to note that if anybody went by in a car, I'm lying flat on the lawn 40 feet away from where cars passing. They're not going to notice me. and. At a certain point, I awakened, and my first feeling was one of real rage, which confused me a bit and that I immediately repressed. My second feeling was a throbbing in my right forearm, and I looked at it and understood immediately that when I fell, I skidded into the sidewalk and I had scraped my arm. Looking at it and saying to myself, wow, what a scab that's going to be you know, like red badge of courage, baby. Look at that. I looked around. These things that had been in the sky were gone. My sister was not there. Got up, everything working okay. And I went in the house to complete what I was going to do to tell our mom. But first, where's my sister? The stairway was right in past the entranceway. My two sisters shared a room at the top of the stairs. And my intuition was, let's check Helen's room. And I walked up the stairs. And before I even got to the top, I could see her with her back to me looking out into the backyard. And I thought, hmm, okay, private moment, leave her alone. Went back downstairs, walked through the living room, walked through the dining room, and got to the doorway. And there's my mom in right profile at the stove making Helen and I lunch as I recall, grilled cheese sandwiches. And the exact words that I said to my mother were, Mom, Helen and I just saw some things in the sky that looked like flying saucers from the movies. 
many years later, when Helen and I sat down with our mom and dad, after we had basically sorted out our memories and told them what we remembered, my mom did not remember this, but it's immaterial. Her response was so correct from my point of view as an adult and of all the things she could have said or a parent could have said to a child in a moment like that. The first thing that comes to my mind would be, oh, you just thought it looked like that, dear. It obviously wasn't because they are not real or some variation on that. That usually comes from a parent's sense of anxiety to, you know, something that intimidates them. My mother turned and looked at me seriously for a period of seconds. And I remember thinking, this is the way grown-ups look at each other. And she did not feel compelled to say something. That may have taken a certain amount of willpower. I was a good kid. I was a terrible liar. <laughs> I still am. At a certain point, she just kind of acknowledged it without a word. And I saw that she had this serious look on her face. And she turned and went back to doing what she was doing. Helen and I had lunch. She came up to me after and said, do you want to talk about this? Or what we saw, I don't remember the exact words, but it was in that frame. And I said to her, no. A response that came back to haunt me many years later. I, the next thing I knew, I was on my Schwinn bicycle pedaling to the Rockville Center Public Library to take out a book or two to explain to me that whatever we had seen was explainable in conventional earthly terms. I had a good imagination, I still do, but I had no interest whatsoever in somebody telling me that this was, you know, a wild, fantastic thing. At the time, most libraries in America had fairly respectable sections on the UFO phenomena. In the 70s, I don't know whether it was a push from the American Library Association or just the ridicule factor catching up with popular culture, but most of those collections were dumped in book sales. And there are, there are some libraries that now have respectable sections, but they depleted them tremendously. I grabbed two books off the shelf. One had Flying Saucer in the title. The other had UFO. Didn't even look at them. Put them in my bike rack, and I headed back home went upstairs, closed my door, put them on my desk, sat down, and started to go through them. Well, did I pick the wrong two books? One was about this guy's trip to Venus. Couldn't tell you the name of the book if my life depended on it, I think, although maybe a deeper hypnosis uh, might assist. The other one I did remember because the cover is so iconic in early UFO literature, contactee literature, it's called Flying Saucers Have Landed by George Ademski and Desmond Leslie. Ademski went on to be the most high-profile figure in the late 50s, 60s, so-called contactee movement. Leslie went on to a distinguished career as an establishment scientist. And I have to say, over the next days, I knew that this was something I did not want to deal with to such a great degree that I just started to find ways to put it out of my mind. How we do this is just part of the way the mind functions. It was something of a trauma to me. And many people have repressed memories from childhood, sadly, often 
much more blunt physical or you know sexual trauma that they repress. And I threw myself into my life more. I became more outgoing. I ultimately did make contact with the wonderful world of girls. I got more acknowledgement as a young artist in junior high and high school. I even wrestled junior varsity one year, which I hated, but I figured I got to do some kind of sport. And my life went on without a memory of this. The only exception was in the autumn of 1967 as a university student in the halcyon days of the 60s, I took LSD for the first time. It was an ideal kind of experience, uh, very positive, no paranoia in that this drug was not illegal yet in the United States. It was Sandoz Pharmaceutical, manufactured lysergic acid, made in Switzerland, and it was a rip-roaring trip supported by wonderful friends, some who were the designated non-participating drivers, other of us who were tripping. And that memory came back in a very distorted way, but it was strong enough. I had laid out all my art supplies beforehand, was drawing and painting on and off throughout this uh, wonderful experience. And I did a series of watercolors based on it. And then they just went into a portfolio. Some years later, I came upon them, and frankly, I was so upset to see them that I tore them up and threw them away, and nothing rattled that memory loose again until it did 14 and a half years later. A little later, I want to return to explore the rage that you felt as you hit the ground in the beam of blue light. It came up fairly early on in therapy which I went into some months after this return memory because I was having a real problem integrating what I now knew to be true into the life that I was living. And boy, did I find just the right psychotherapist. So yeah, we'll get to that. Okay, so over 14 years later, the conscious recollection of these events returns. What did you do with that? Fourteen and a half years later, I am living my dream. I am a young, aspiring painter living in a loft in East Chinatown in Manhattan. I'm earning my living in several ways. I'm teaching painting in the School of Continuing Education at my alma mater, the School of Visual Arts, the greatest art school in America. I'm working in the Soho district of Manhattan at a time when it was like the gold rush. But by 1970, I would call them a small group of visionary realtors, realized that this completely tumble down part of the city had great potential and could go through a renaissance. The rest is basically history. But for years, it was throbbing with work, construction people turning over these buildings floor by floor floor into grand residences, galleries, upscale shops and cafes, and all kinds of, of creative uses. And I was, for years, a framing carpenter working on these buildings. Basically, almost all of us were artists, and we all had some aspect of building trade that we either 
learned apprenticing with somebody else or taught ourselves or what have you. And at lunch, you know, we'd sit around eating our hero sandwiches and talking. And one of the artists who was working as a plumber was an up-and-coming composer who I thought was incredibly smart and really interesting and very low-key. And that was Philip Glass. You know, you'd make a thousand, two thousand dollars, you'd go back to your loft and you'd work until you were almost out of money. Stick your head up and say, anybody got a crew going? I was living my dream. Had a really nice girlfriend. I was starting to sell a few pieces a year. I would say several months before this memory returned, a young woman that I knew, she was basically an accountant who was smart as a whip and who specialized in, in doing taxes, income taxes for artists. She contacted me at one point and said that she was starting to put together a small stable of painters because her intention was to be an art dealer. And I thought, Mary is sharp. She has it all going for her. She knows the art world, and I don't have a dealer per se, but we made an appointment for her to come up to my studio to look at my work. Cordial, but all business. And she was intrigued enough that she said, I want to make an appointment to come back in six months. And if I like the progression of your work, then I will certainly consider having you as an artist that I represent. Well, that was great and something to look forward to. So we come to this point, and as I recall, it was in February of 1975. Again, I am living my dream. I am eating, breathing, and sleeping, dreaming about the New York art world. And my intention was to become a successful painter-sculptor. Photography was something I was doing as well. I was coming out of the prevalent two schools then manifesting themselves in the New York art world, minimalism and conceptualism. My work was fairly stripped down and influenced by quite a number of different things. There came a point where several things converged. Number one is called EST. I had never heard of it. It was fairly new. It was one of the earlier trainings in New York. It was in Madison Square Garden. It was with Warner Earhart, who had founded it. It cost $300 that I didn't have, but I did it. And after three or four grueling 16-hour days, we graduate. It certainly opened me up to a degree. The other thing was that it had just been Chinese New Year. If you live in Chinatown back then, during Chinese New Year, you don't sleep. It's like you're in the DMZ. It's two days and three nights of fireworks. And I had not slept well. Most important, Stuart, was I guess I was simply, my mind was simply ready to deal with this. The trigger for this return memory was that not long before, several months, my grandmother, my grandfather had been a printer. He passed when I was nine or 10. But there were always papers and pencils, and they got me watercolors in their house. So I had worked diligently over the time of my visits there as a child, and then didn't think anything about the work itself. But Grandma did. She saved 50 or 60 drawings and paintings that I did from about 14 years old down to when I was about six. And one evening after she had made dinner and we were chatting, she said, I have a surprise for you, dear, and disappeared and came back with a small portfolio filled with these drawings and paintings. I was beside myself. 
I didn't know that they were around. And it was one of the most wonderful gifts anyone ever gave me. So that afternoon, I was sitting on the floor of my loft going through these drawings and paintings, just really re-enjoying them more than anything. The last ones were done when I was 14 years old, close to the time that the event occurred with Helen. Like a freight train roaring out of my subconscious came this memory of what I described earlier. I could hardly believe it, except that I absolutely not only did believe it, but thought there must be something wrong with me. How could a sane person ever repress a memory so profound? I actually got quite upset and thought, I must have a real mental problem here. I don't think the term repressed memory syndrome existed in the lexicon, the literature at the time, but I was, it was like a tape loop that wouldn't stop. It had happened. It was real. They were real. And I kind of broke down. Then I, you know, pulled myself together, washed my face, had a cup of tea. The portfolio is lying open on the floor. And I think, what do I do now? And then I immediately knew what I had to do. I had a witness. Uh, my sister Helen at the time was your classic bohemian starving artist living a mile or so north of me in the East Village in a 150 or so year old tenement walk-up on the fifth floor. And she was a very serious poet, also painted, but was making some of her living using her skill as a fashion tailor, making one-of-a-kind leathers for rock and rollers. In fact, her boyfriend at the time, still one of my dearest friends, Albert Bouchard, was the drummer for the Blue Oyster Cult, a band she was hanging around with regularly and who I knew, all the guys in the group going back to the late 60s before they were the Blue Oyster Cult. And I thought, you got one shot at this, do it right. I'm glad to say that I thought it out all beforehand. And I realized what I didn't want to do was call her up and blurt out what I remembered and say, do you remember that? Because I knew then I would never know for sure if she remembered it or remembered something like it, but a yes or no wasn't going to do it. So I called her. Is this a good time to talk? Yeah. I have remembered something from childhood that we experienced together, and I need to know what you remember. But I'm afraid if I tell you what I remember first, you'll say yes or no. She got it. And I said, so I'm going to set the scene and see if it brings up anything. And with that, I started to describe the time of year, the time of day, the weather that morning, where we were standing in relation to each other on the front one. And she just stopped me mid-sentence laughing and said, stop, I know what you're talking about. And then proceeded to tell me everything that I remembered. And the one discrepancy we worked out very quickly the next day, she wasn't sure whether it was five or six of these, I'll call them craft. And that was resolved because after we got off the phone, I did my very first UFO painting, a very simple painting, pencil drawing of six little craft, and then spent several hours kind of calming down, just filling in the sky with white oil paint. And when I showed it to her the next day, holding my hand over the one in the lower right, and then removing it, 
she remembered like I did that it was an even V shape, which would have meant it had to be an odd number rather than a check mark with six. And as she finished telling me her memory, I experienced again something that I've never experienced quite before or since, which was almost this schizophrenic reaction of, oh my God, they're real. Oh my God, they're real. And then she said something that profoundly changed my life and is more than anything the reason that I'm talking to you right now, Stuart, and your listening audience, which was, but there's more. And I don't know how you're going to feel about it. I don't know if you're going to like it. Remember, this is 1975. The study of UFO abductions was not even in its infancy quite yet. As David Jacobs once said to me, a a colleague and a well-known abduction researcher or professor back in the day, back then we were studying and focused on the vehicles and not the drivers. Ufology was in a very different state then. Overall, middle-aged white guys, I'd say that still dominates the scene to a degree, who wanted to be taken seriously. And talking about radar returns and traces after landings and things and, you know, descriptions of craft was plenty. The term gray was another 10 or 15 years until it became part of the culture to describe that ubiquitous, emaciated looking being we often associate with the abduction phenomena. But she went on to say, I remember you kind of disappearing from my peripheral vision. I knew instinctively you were running into the house to tell mom, but nothing was going to make me take my eyes off of this thing. She also then told me, I thought it was wonderful. It was the most amazing thing I had ever seen. I didn't feel intimidated. Some years later, one of the greatest minds I ever studied with, the late Professor John Bell at New York University, who really helped me sort this out. He was a brilliant scholar and took UFOs very seriously, that as a 14-year-old, boy in American culture being run by my hormones, very concerned about wanting to be accepted and part of the crowd and all that. I was running on a very different wavelength than a 12-year-old girl who was still on the edge of imaginary friends, and these were not concerns of hers. And she said, you peeled out, and within two or three seconds, I saw something that even as a kid, I knew I couldn't be seeing, but I saw it which was a blue beam of light come out of one of the bottom of these things. And I followed it, and I turned around, and you were in it. And I'm not stupid. I know you can't see a beam of light during the day, but nonetheless. And she said, then the light went out, you fell down, and I simply went up. What do you mean, Helen? I rose off the ground. I just started to rise in the air. And within a matter of moments, I was looking down on you and for the only time in my life, the roof of our house on Harvard Avenue getting smaller and smaller. Her hair was quite long. She described what it was like blowing and that she was getting closer and closer to the bottom of one of these particular craft. And like me, in the moment of suspended reality, no anxiety at all, fascination, wonder. I mean, one would think a child might be terrified. If something happened, you would simply fall and die. But no. And then she described a series of fragmented memories that she had never forgotten. 
which was being walked through a curved metal hallway accompanied by half a dozen, seven or eight small beings. Again, that term gray was not available, and she described them with a language that she developed for herself as a 12-year-old, which was little doctors with big heads and big black eyes who talked to me in my head, and one tall one who was obviously the leader. The next thing she knew, she's on the table with all of the little ones standing around and the big one over her, and they're doing stuff. And she's a 12-year-old girl lying there with no clothes, just simply quite fascinated by what's going on. And she is hearing as clearly as you are hearing me in her head, in clear English, and she felt it was coming from the big one, certain phrases that I'm listening to my sister on the phone and thinking, this can't be happening. This is the craziest thing in the world. Except that I've now heard the same things hundreds of times with slight variations from people all over this country and to a degree all over the world. You've seen us before. You'll see us again. You're special. We will not harm you. We love you. For Helen, the disconnect was when she heard in her head, we will not harm you. She was experiencing more than discomfort, some pain with whatever they were doing. And the next thing she knew, she was back in the front of the house, and I was still lying there, and she walked over to me, and she said, I could see you stirring, and I knew you were okay and would come out of it shortly. I don't know how, but I knew it. And I just went upstairs to my room to my think, to think. Well, she tells me all of this, and my first thought was, that's crazy. My sister's obviously crazy, because she wasn't a liar. And again, we were very close as kids, and really very much best friends as adults. We were adult roommates in two apartments and a house over the course of almost 10 years. We edited each other's writing. We, you know, smoked a lot of weed and watched bad movies all night. We dated each other's friends. We helped each other with our careers. We had each other's backs. And my second thought was, oh, that's crazy. But three seconds ago, five flying saucers close enough to see windows hanging over the Parker's house. That's fine. And people use the phrase, Stuart, you know, my life changed overnight. Well, my life changed in about 15 seconds. Mm -hmm. Everything changed at that moment for me. And although I didn't identify it as such at that moment, my one dream of moving into the adult world from childhood had derailed. I continued to paint and teach for another half dozen years or so. But I had suffered a mortal blow as a passionate young artist. Something more profoundly important had just gotten in the way of my life, and I resented the hell out of it. And to a minor degree, I still do. That dream became something that I was, I wasn't a dilettante. I still loved the art world. I wanted to make a mark in it, but the rug had been pulled out. I went down for the count in a way, and I was faking it to a degree. The heart of the passion never fully came back. It didn't rob me of the joy of studying the great artists, going to museums, having many visual artist friends, but everything changed. And 
I didn't get into ufology out of an intellectual interest or curiosity. I became obsessed right then and there with what in the name of God had happened to my sister and what was the story with this phenomena and why was it such an outsider topic in the world. Here we are more than 40 years later talking about just this. Be sure to catch part two of our conversation with Peter Robbins. For more information on Peter Robbins, check the show notes for links to his work and to his Facebook page. I spoke with Albert Bouchard about Peter's sister, Helen. For many years, Albert and Helen were very close. They were lovers, friends, and co-creators. Albert is a founding member of Blue Oyster Cult, a band Helen also wrote for. Albert shared with us what it was like to be so close with Helen as her recollections of the UFOs and her abduction moved to the fore in her life again. Now, the interesting thing from your angle is that even though she had this experience with a UFO, I think that she had forgotten all about it because she never, ever mentioned it to me in the years that we were together. Never. Um, yeah, I mean, she'd tell me stories about her childhood, but that was not ever mentioned. Fast forward many years, you know, and we, we were friends. We were boyfriend, girlfriend. Then, you know, we broke up and then we got back together and then we broke up again. And then we eventually decided that, you know what, we make really great friends. We are great friends maybe not the greatest of lovers you know mm -hmm. and not not from the love making aspect but from all the other stuff that goes with that she was a bit of a free spirit after we decided to be friends then i became friends with her boyfriends and everybody but al so al was her her boyfriend he was not friendly to me i i don't know why you know maybe he was threatened i i understand it's and it was during the time that she was with Al that she did this, uh, what do you call it, uh, hypnosis? Regression hypnosis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. She, that was when that happened. I think Al was uh, into doing that. She did that, and that's when she discovered or remembered that she uh, had been abducted. And then Peter, from talking to Peter, they both started remembering instance of that day myself i don't know if i you know i mean sometimes you see things and you don't quite understand what they are especially when you're younger who knows what what that actually was you know and if it was a living being or a spirit being or i mean it could have been some other living entity you know if it was a real ufo i would imagine that that would be the the case i do believe that something happened I'm not sure exactly what it is or why she forgot it or why she never mentioned it to me for the first 10 years or so that we knew each other. I said, why didn't you tell me? She said, I didn't remember, you know, when we would talk about it. So, so it's not as though this was out of bounds or off limits as a topic between the two of you. She simply wasn't consciously contending with it in those intervening years. Is that fair to say? Yeah. That was the case, that she simply didn't remember. She was never afraid to talk about anything. Having known her for so long and created art together, would you say that childhood event and the conscious 
reemergence of it later in life, did she seem to struggle with it? Did her artwork factor in the integration of those experiences? Yeah, I think she didn't have a difficult time. Once the door was open, then she had uh, she used images on her uh, her second record that she recorded that yeah. my brother produced. She had images of of aliens and spaceships and all this stuff, but she also you know she incorporated everything into her writing and her her music and her art. And I don't think it was hard for her once once she had remembered what happened, then it flowed. What was it like to know someone so well for so long and then at a later stage have this recovered memory of such an extraordinary experience shared with her brother, who's also a close friend to you? How did you make sense of it all? I think that it's something that I'm still processing to this day. I've never seen a UFO, even though I would like to, I think. You know, I don't know. I just see. I'm always looking to, at the skies and trying to see something out there. And who knows? You know, I mean, I think it's uh, impossibly presumptuous to think that there isn't anything out there. I think that that's the universe is too big for there not to be other life out there. I suppose having known her for so long, you had a solid sense of who she was as a person. Did that contextualize or mitigate? the interpersonal vertigo that may have otherwise set in because you could rely on the veracity of her knowing that she had an experience? Yeah, that she had some sort of experience. She interpreted it as aliens and, or UFOs and that they came from out of the sky. The other thing about it is that when you're young, you get older and you start recounting these things, you know, even after 10 years, you can kind of change things around and can't remember if it was five or six. I mean, that's natural. That just happens to everybody. So mm. I never, ever doubted the veracity of her story. I would question her once in a while about her interpretation of what happened, what happened when she went up into the spaceship. How would she respond when you asked those questions? Did she seem certain it was physical beings, a physical craft, and an abduction? She was pretty sure that her interpretation was, was correct. You know, I've talked with Peter about it. Peter, I think, is more open to, well, it could have been something else. You know, it could have been a spirit. I believe in spirits. I don't think I've ever mentioned this, but when I met Helen, I'd had half a dozen or so girlfriends before her. But with her, I felt like I could tell what she was thinking when we weren't together, like far apart. I would get these vibes about, uh, often I was correct about what, you know, being able to have this like uh, extrasensory experience with her. Wow. How many times did that extrasensory connection occur? Oh, well, I mean, maybe a half a dozen times, you know, in the, in the very, you know, first couple of years that we were together. A lot of people who have contact with non-human entities, abductions, implants, they report that consciousness itself is altered, amplified. In Helen's case, do you sense any such connections? Here's what I think. It's one of two explanations is that she had that experience because of who she was because of the way her brain worked or her brain worked that way because she had that experience. <laughs> There's only two ways to look at it. Yeah. 
Of the two, which would be your guess? I really think it's the way the way that she thought, the way that she she was open to these other vibes, you know, yeah. for lack of a better word, but yeah. I recently read that the band name Blue Oyster Cult comes from the poetry work of Sandy Perlman, and it refers to a race of alien entities which is secretly controlling the evolution of humanity. Is that accurate? Is that truly the origin and source of the name Blue Oyster Cult? That is absolutely true. <laughs> Crazy. Because, you know, that, that, that story started before I even met Helen. I can't really reproduce the story the way that was told to me, but I remember that we had a band house. It was within the first couple weeks that we got that band house and Sandy Perlman, the manager, came over to the house and uh, we used to go up in the attic and smoke pot. You know, we didn't want uh, the uh, owner to smell the pot, you know, when he came in. (laughs) (laughs) So, because it was a rental. (laughs) We were up in the attic, you know, which was lit by a candle and Sandy Perlman was up there and we're smoking pot and he starts telling the story and I'm like, wow, this is... This is crazy. This is a, this is an awesome story. I mean, and I would say, where did you get these these ideas for this story? And he's like, well, I, I just thought of them, but you know, it's part of my experience here on Long Island, and also some of the, his favorite authors like H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, Lovecraft fan. That vibe runs through a lot of the Blue Oyster Cult songs. My friend, the ungoogleable Michelangelo, who is host of self-portraits as other people a podcast we recommend you checking out pointed out how hilariously perfect is that name of the person who came up with blue oyster cult his name again (laughs) sandy pearl man the origin and source of the name blue oyster cult wow albert bouchard has a new album out november 6th 2020 go to albertbouchard.net or check the show notes for more information. Aliens and Artists is brought to you by The Liminal Muse. Sessions focus on creativity, spirituality, and paranormal work, emphasizing integral practices and methodologies. Go to The Liminal Muse, that's M as in mother, U-S-E, theliminalmuse.com to book a session.
My head bleeds, vanishing 